0: All boys must leave home. All boys get the urge to roam. Heroes and hunters and adventurous boys. Caught between manhood and childish toys. We long to be tested and taken. Once more onto the breach. We long for our day on Omaha Beach. We are pushing and pulling and trying to bust loose. Rebelling against anything that's not our treat. Directionless nights on a quest for a tale. That we can tell our grandkids when we become frail. Wild boys. Crazy boys, noisy boys, thinking
1: boys, dreaming boys, boys on the verge, boys with the urge for going. That was playwright John DeFusco performing a piece from his new show, The Long Way Home, a reflection on the Tracers' journey. Welcome to Onstage, Offstage. I'm George Sapio. In 1980, John DeFusco created the groundbreaking, critically acclaimed Vietnam play, Tracers developing it with a group of Vietnam veteran actors. He directed the premiere production at the Odyssey Theater in Los Angeles. The play was subsequently produced by the Steppenwolf Theater Company and directed by Gary Sinise. John DeFusco himself is also a director and has directed many productions over the years. He's also the playwright of Walking Through the Fire, a biographical retrospective. He's a frequent featured artist at the prestigious Last Frontier Theater Conference in Valdez, Alaska. John's awards include the New York Drama Desk Award, the Los Angeles Drama Critics Circle Award, two NAACP Awards, and the U.S. Armed Forces Commendation Medal for Meritorious Service in Vietnam, where he served from 1967 to 68. We began by asking John about the play Tracers and how it was conceived and developed. Way, way back. Well, yes, the original version was 1980. In 82, uh, I I, I did a production
0: with the Steffelwolf Theater they weren't the huge company that they are now, but it was directed by Garrison and some of their more well known actors and it I did rewrites with them and then in eighty uh, 586, I managed to get it to the Public
1: Theater in New York where I completely restructured the scripts for that show. And that's the one that you see as the published script now. served from 67 to 68 in Vietnam. You were an actor or a writer at that particular time. Had you been involved in the theater by the time you went over there? No, the only
0: thing I'd done is worked in a shoe factory after high school. <laughs> Uh, I'm from a small town in Massachusetts, a factory town, Webster, Mass. Out of high school, that was my first job in a shoe factory. But I had this strange, crazy fantasy about being an actor. I had no idea how you'd become an actor, but somehow I always knew that somehow it was something I wanted to do. The way of getting out of town like this, all boys must leave home, which what follows this poem in the story is my best friend Louie and I running off to the recruiter at the moment we turn 18 to join the service to get out of our hometowns. And for me, it was also a a dream to get educated after the service on the GI Bill. And so what happened with me is more and more, I still was fascinated with this idea of actor and and writer as well. So in Vietnam, actually, I began to keep journals. And at that time I was 19, I turned 20 there. So I do have this whole spiral notebook. I just posted a piece on Facebook a few days ago. The stuff that I wrote there. Some of it's very influenced by Bob Dylan and Leonard Cohen, and some of it is my own original teenage angst in, in light of Vietnam. With Vietnam as the backdrop, you know, uh-huh. a, lot of, uh, a lot of a lot of lot uh, of crying about Dear John letters and all that kind of thing.
1: A lot of stuff that actually ended up in Tracers in the end, you know, 40 years later. What started the creation process? What was the creation process for Traces? You talk about it being developmental and uh, using all veterans, non-actors? No, they were trained
0: in different different levels. But after the, after the military, I did go to school in the GI Bill. I, I, I still had this fantasy of being an actor. I discovered there's something called a the theater major. So oh, yes. Theater yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm familiar I say, with oh, that myself. I can... Yeah. So I became a theater arts major and I had the writing fantasy too. So I had an English minor. And uh, so I did that. I graduated, got my education, my own little American dream. And I hit the street as an actor here in LA. And I got involved with the Odyssey Theater Ensemble, which is now kind of an institution here on the West Coast. But at the time there were about 20 of us all fresh out of college, starting a theater to try and do something new and experimental and all of that in our heroes were people like krakowski Kurt, and, and uh, joe chaykin in the open theater and that sort of thing so i got more and more even though i wanted to be an actor i i i, I kind of got away from the idea of movie star i wouldn't have turned it down if it was offered to me but i got more involved in this you know theater as art and experimental theater i was involved in a few productions uh where uh plays were created through the group this workshop process like the open theater and the living theater so that's what inspired me being in these other productions i started thinking well if i could just find a group of actors that also been in vietnam because the one thing that I knew, I mean, most of us who were there, we spent that whole time in the 70s especially trying to put it behind us, but it never really does get behind you. It never actually goes away. It, it is the most important thing that happens to you in your life up to that point, usually, if you've been in a combat zone. So it was always there for me, even though I didn't talk about it much. But the more I saw this process, the more I thought, if I could find some guys. So I was in a show. Uh, I wasn't feeling productive and... One day i just dropped out of that show and i ran an ad in the drama log for actors who are vietnam vets and about 25 guys turned out for the auditions for this play that did not exist and one by one i would explain to them well this is my plan i'm going to do this workshop
1: sure and
0: i locked locked in on six guys and um i found a space through favors it was the very beginning of what we call, you know, the Vietnam Veterans Network slash Mafia. The first thing that happened was I I got a group and I didn't have a space. And then I found a guy who was the founder of the Vet Center Counseling Program. And he said, are you going to try to make a play? And I said, yeah. He said, well, good. I'll get you a space at the old VA grounds. And so we got this space, you know, an abandoned dining hall on the old VA grounds. And I started the workshops. We worked five nights a week with uh, no promise that there was ever going to be a show.
1: You know, they stuck with me. What kind of, uh, what did you do during these rehearsals? Was it uh, improvisation? Did you work on themes? The reason I ask is because when you go into a play like this, a developmental thing, my first question is always do you know what you want to say in the end? And if you are constructing a play about someone's experience in a war zone, when most vets are notably reticent about discussing that, That, in turn, seems like a challenge right there. It's about trust, really. What happened, because I had enough enough experience with this type
0: of work as an actor, I had enough tools in the toolbox, and I had enough blind faith in myself to actually believe that I knew what I was doing. And then maybe I was gifted with, with leadership ability that I actually didn't know that I had, but I do know that somehow, for some reason people are willing to follow me most of the time. <laughs> so, uh, so what happened was uh, I, I had a list. I mean, at that time there were a few things uh, uh, sticks and bones had been done and apocalypse now had been done and deer hunter. Had been done. That was kind of the most prominent things that you saw sticks and bones being the most dramatic thing in theater. And, uh, And none of them felt true to me. None of them felt, I mean, they're very powerful pieces of work, all of them. But none of them felt to me like they were our experience. They missed uh, personal things that I just felt. And it's kind of like how I feel is that, I mean, you know that Apocalypse Now was actually based on something that took place in Africa. So already Mm -hmm. you're starting out with, with, you know, another story and trying to twist it onto Vietnam. Uh, Apocalypse Now captured the look, the texture, the the feel. When I walked out of there, I did out of that movie the first time I saw it, I saw it in the Cinerama. I did feel like I could smell it, you know. But I also didn't feel like it was my experience in any way at all. It was this grand dios tale, you know, that none of us average GIs would never have anything to do with, you know, on a day to day basis. Uh, you know, it was a lot of boredom in, in, in war. The, the second act of, of Tracers begins with this a uh, card game called fun and games where the uh, dinky down says i'm so bored i could scream you know i'm gonna beg them to send me back to the bush so there are things like that that i always felt were missing in the language you know in vietnam when you got there there was always somebody who kind of clued you in on the on the lingo on the slang right and that's why like in tracers you have this thing about fng and these different things that happen i i, I piece that stuff into into scenes but it was kind of a big thing to me because when I got back I realized that I was still using the slang and most of the time people didn't know what I was talking about unless they were also a veteran Sorry. so more, and more I had to drop it but it was really almost like another language so that was a very prominent thing to me so in the workshops what I did was I had a list a list of subjects that I wanted to cover that I felt hadn't been covered and I did uh, we would discuss that list. We get personal improvisations based on the list of things. Somebody had, oh, I had this experience with drugs. Okay, boom, let's, let's improvise that. So there's a lot of that. Sometimes I would have them standing in a circle and we would just rattle off things, anything that we could remember. And that's where the list and the ritual stuff comes from. You have all these lists of terms and, and memories and so forth. And then because of my kind of open theater, living theater background, I added movement to those to those to those what were just words really, uh, but words that nobody had ever heard before. Uh, we we stood in a circle and, and, and rattled off things that we remembered people asking us, and that actually was the beginning of the play and the end of the play. Someone told me you are in Vietnam. Someone told me you had a gun. You killed people. You were only nineteen. How was the heat? How was the drugs? All those things were really just kind of group improvisations. I also did a lot of trust work. I kind of skipped over that, but I did the, the basic trust work that you've all seen in probably every theater school in the country. You're falling into each other's arms and all of right. that. I would always start with physical movement. And my own my own approach to theater is always physical. I, 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 besides tracers, everything I've done is physical because I think the body tells a story as well. And and uh,
1: well, I've, uh, I've seen I clips to, from uh, I've seen clips from some of your work, and it's seen, it does. It is, in fact, very physical. In fact, it's. I'm probably going to say this the wrong way, but it's sort of like a martial arts ritual warm up kind of thing. I've seen you do. I do a lot of stuff like that. You know? Yeah, and, and and I mean that that's yeah you know, centered around tracers
0: with the, the tai chi and the tai chi began because I wanted everybody in the group. This is in the original group, to to have a physical movement that uh, in common. I didn't really know they had a plan for it to be in the show or anything like that. I just started using it as a warm-up. One of the actors knew a little bit about it, and I knew a little bit about it, and we just started doing it, and I learned more. So that became a warm-up. And as I created the play and I saw certain things, the Tai Chi is actually a huge part of um, one of the endings of the play. The play sometimes has been criticized for having three endings, and it does. And I know that. <laughs> but the trick is, what the trick is when you're directing it is to never let it stop. You try not to let people applaud. I never have a blackout on those three endings. So the second to the last ending is the scene called the Ghost Dance, the Resurrection, and that grew from us doing a Tai Chi warm up in 1979 in the workshops to. 1985 in New York when I was trying to make the production bigger and then by this time the wall had been created when we started the wall didn't exist there was no memorial so I wanted to bring the wall into the play and just watching the group on stage it just evolved on its own that I realized this ghost dance this tai chi movement in front of this wall could be an extremely powerful piece of theater and it was kind of like I discovered how well it worked visually before I had any idea what it meant, Mm -hmm. and then I kind of deciphered it myself and maybe even justified it, but what it meant to me was there was this tribute to the dead, and there was also this Raising of of the dead of my own guys who you know people say well how can they get killed and then they get up well that's what it is it's that's a death it's a resurrection just like in Joseph Campbell <laughs> exactly it's a death and they also represent to me when our six guys go down in that moment I'm trying to represent everybody who went down and then we resurrect them. So, I mean, if it make, if it's making sense, what I'm getting at is the Tai Chi began way back in 1980 as something we were vaguely familiar with, and then in 85, on a rehearsal at 10 o'clock in the morning, I walked in and I listened to this Laurie Anderson song that I'd been listening to, Born Never Asked, and I went, oh, this just all works together, and I'm putting it here. And I moved it to the end of the play. It had been in the beginning of the play. And anyway, that's how that all came about.
1: One of the things about not to
0: say that all not to say that I only do martial arts because what I mean by the movement thing is I just think it should be part of the theater and this is completely a personal directorial take and, and some people have asked me at times about the structure of Tracers because there's no actual plot it's just this series of stories that are actually weaved together emotionally and how I decided on that structure this is in finalizing the script in New York was because I went to so many rock concerts, <laughs> so I thought, well, I know I'm taking people on this journey that's a feeling, emotional, passionate journey, so that's how I structured it. I structured it to take you up, take you down, have three or four blues numbers, literally to laugh and cry seems structured in such a way that you, you're laughing, you're laughing, you're laughing, and boom, you're hit, you know, and then in and the end of it, those well not not all three endings but the two endings they're both kind of finales they're they're like the big finish of a rock concert and then if people do at the end of the script, there's i have instructions about which way you can do this because it's hard to do this percussion thing that, is, that i do the call response thing how does it feel to kill somebody how does it feel to kill somebody some young directors have never been able to pull that together, but I instruct you on doing that and that anyway, my point is kind of the
1: encore
0: that you are watching a rock concert yeah. that 's
1: if you 're just tuning in, this is on stage off stage. I am George Sapio, and we are speaking with John De Fusco, the author of the classic play tracers we 're talking about that right now, I'm talking about the development process. Um, One of the things about theater that makes it theater is that it is fluid. Uh, Playwrights get a chance to adjust, correct, augment, change their play as time goes by. Tracers is, I mean... I don't think
0: this sounds pretentious. It's just true. Tracers is kind of alive. I kind of had to learn that on my own. It's, it's I'm the creator of it, but it's a monster of, unto itself. I feel sometimes. So uh, I, I am going to answer your question. There are times when I've seen other productions because I do leave it in the script. If a director is courageous, you know, I say play around with it, try new stuff. I don't care, whatever, you know. And so sometimes I see productions where they've done that, and I go. Oh, man, what is that? And sometimes I see stuff where I go, well, that's really good. I'm going to use that in my next show. You know. And uh, what I did do also in terms of that evolution thing, the play was published in uh, 84, 85 out of the New York production. It was a sideline. I, I never really knew. How do you get a play published? And and then all of a sudden Tracy was a hit in New York, and they came to me. And so I say to people, well, how do you get published? You got to do it in New York, you <laughs> know, because it really just came about. But then I went on the road. What happened after New York is I went to we went to London, Australia, and, and by this time, both on the East Coast and the West Coast. I had a pool of veteran actors, different people that I had found that come to me. always wanted to be a part of it. So I ended up on these tours, these road tours all over the world, really, and in the country here. Guys who were in those shows would bring stuff in that I liked here and there. And I would say, oh, keep that. And, you know, I would come up with something. Oh, I'm going to use that. So the show was still even evolving on these tours after New York. So in 99... I went to the publisher and I said, I've got all these little bits and I've got some things I'd like to cut or fix that were mistakes in the printing. So I did a revised edition in 99, which uh, <clears throat> I don't know if you can remember, but there are certain things in there, like the chief Joseph sequence and professor and doc, I'll fight no more forever. Right. That was new. That, that was brought in from a, an actor up in Seattle and did it on the road, things like that. So yeah. And even now when I do it, I play with it. And you know, when I did it with this group of, Actor Vets, at um, I should name the place because we are a struggling arts organization called the U.S. Veterans Artists Alliance, www.usvaa.org. This is a group that uh, specializes in promoting the veteran as artists, not just actors and writers, but all artists. And, and uh, we keep a list, uh, uh, an ongoing list of, of many Americans who have contributed to uh, uh, the, the art who are veterans uh, right. off the top of my head. Oh, there's Kurt Vonnegut, there's Lee Marvin, there's uh, the first one on the list is Edgar Allan Poe actually who fought in the Civil War. So we have this whole list of veterans and I'm part of that group. And um, when I did it with those guys,
1: uh, I changed some things, you know, the young guys came in with stuff. He was really interesting to them. Considering the nature, of the inspiration for this, which is war, and especially the Vietnam War, which we saw on TV. And it's the last war we actually did see on TV. And it showed things, it brought things into the living rooms of America that uh, were difficult to watch sometimes. Um, In the creation of of Tracers, were there scenes that were too challenging or too explicit or that you decided not to show your standard American audience? There were a few things that we
0: decided as a group, and in some cases maybe I decided not to keep in, but they were not actually developed into, into theatrical scenes. We just knew that it was too personal, uh, there would be the possibility that somebody could track down and say oh well that guy was stationed with my son it was at him that this happened to so there were a few things like that that we didn't put in we were in that first production i mean we were all basically about seven or ten years away from our war because we were all there at different times in different places things were really fresh and the first thing I noticed in the workshops was the rawness of the language. I mean, I don't know how much you can say on this radio show, but you know the language. I, I'm still certain that we give David Mamet a run for his money, and, and our F words Oh, mean a yes, you do. Yeah. Ours, ours actually, but ours actually have meaning. <laughs> they're, they're, to me, they're, they're poetry. You know, I don't talk like that all the time. You know me personally. Uh-huh. But that play, and once, once all that started coming out, I did sit back in the workshop and go, Oh, man, how are people going to take this? But I have to look at everybody and go, that's the way we talked. That's staying. So that's an example of how I didn't take anything out. Probably one of the – there were two two big scenes. Blanket Party. Blanket Party is the scene about picking up body parts and dead bodies. It's a very simple scene. It's a very short scene. That scene, off the top of my head, I would say, probably only has about eight or ten lines in it. A very quiet scene but it's always written up as the harrowing and assaulting and blanket party and when i was working on that scene it was an improv because uh, one of the actors merlin marsh little john had spent a lot of time on body detail so we got into this whole discussion about dead bodies and what that was like as a kid and all that so we created the scene we were improvising it And my wife, Lupe, was was bringing somebody in. We never really allowed anybody in these workshops, but there was this agent that was interested in us And and because she had kind of a political edge. And I thought, well, let her come in for about five minutes and I'll meet her and we'll talk to her. So I'm working on a blanket party. The guys are walking around, they're picking up these body parts and they're talking about them and all this stuff, describing the body parts. And the woman, I see out of the corner of my eye that Lupe's standing in the background with this woman, this agent, and then she comes over to me and she whispers in my ear, she goes, are you really going to do this? <laughs> <laughs> and, and honestly, I mean, you know me, George, the moment that you said that, the moment, that was the moment I knew we were really going to do this <laughs> Yeah, because it was that harrowing just for them in an improv. I thought this is important to see. You obviously then, found a,
1: a moment of truth that, that shook people.
0: Yeah. Yeah. And, and, uh, you know at the time, there was no show. I didn't know you know but but and now, as I said, that scene is probably one of the most written up scenes in the play that one in the professor and the doc right um the ambush scene the the uh the the ending that comes before the ghost ending <laughs> where everybody gets killed and uh give me shelter is roaring through the speakers hopefully in most productions uh um in that scene, the incident was a, a horseshoe ambush, where there was no way to get out, and it was it was the experience of one of our actors, Rick Gallivan, who originated the part of Scooter. And a lot of people died in that scene, and and so in in the real scene, right. and, and 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 several guys committed suicide because it it just looked like there was nowhere to go, and they didn't want to be killed by Charlie. So. Uh, They blew themselves away, and if you remember, if you've seen that team production, it's very specific that Baby Son does that, blows Mm -hmm. himself away in in the middle of this combat scene. Originally, it was several guys in that story, so that's what's not in there.
1: Yeah, It's been almost 40 years now since the helicopters lifted people off the top of the embassy in 1975, Vietnam being... I'd say one of the top watershed moments of American history, and it changed the country in ways that we'll never be able to fully explicate in in one long summary. But since then we've had nine eleven and we've had that change the country, and we've had our quote modern wars, you know, Iraq, Afghanistan, and people have always tried to make sense of this by creating works of art to explain, to to process through. What do you think the difference is between what you were doing back in 1980 with Tracers and what folks are trying to achieve today with all the various movies like Hurt Locker and plays like Plumfield Iraq? Um, how have things changed, or have they changed?
0: What I think is interesting is that these movies in, in a lot of plays. Are, I mean, I haven't, I haven't seen them all, but I, there are several smaller plays that were you know, done in, in Equity waiver theaters out here that you haven't seen in New York, probably. And, and then there are other more well-known plays and films. I've seen most of the documentaries. Um, and the, the biggest difference that I see is that they were making these things while the wars were still going on. And that, to me, was kind of strange. I don't know, It's like somehow... I I mean, my motivation was I thought we were going to be the forgotten veterans, so it's not for me to say, you know, but I did feel like there's a line in The Long Way Home. It's the 70s, people, uh, it's the 70s and people want to put the war behind, it's the 70s and America wants to put the war behind them and go out disco dancing. But we, the Vietnam veterans, we can't do that. So uh, that's how, how our our thing came out after the war. That's what I'm saying is that more, it was more, um, there were a lot of books that came out around the same time that Trace did. I was inspired by a lot of books written by veterans that, you know, that kind of came in went, but Rumor of War and Born on the Fourth of July, these books were all written by fairly young veterans. And, uh, and uh, so I was inspired by those. But again, they were all five to 10 years after the war. And the big difference I see with these wars is that, And you know what else? I got to say this. When I was trying, when I was creating Tracers and when I first got it up in the first production, we couldn't get anybody to come and see it. I had to beg my friends to come and see this play because people didn't want to hear about Vietnam. Once it became successful, then there became, once once we hit New York, then all of a sudden we started to see all these movies being made about Vietnam in the 80s. Right. Uh, And and again, so so it was a taboo subject, then it became an in-subject. You know, I had this thing of, yeah, nobody recognizes us. And then after a while, I was like, they're recognizing us too much. Stop welcoming me home. Give me a break. It's you know, <laughs> kind of like, you know, people think I only direct plays that have beer and guns and men in them, you know, uh, through the nineties I purposely right. changed my course a little bit. But anyway, i you know, trying to get away from it. But my real point is more of that. So people learned that they actually couldn't make money off of these Vietnam movies. And what I, I'm only guessing, cause you asked the question. I never really thought about it, but these films were made during the wars. And I have to, Think, knowing Hollywood well enough that someone thought that they were going to make money. That's Obviously, our way of honoring. Yeah. That's our way of honoring the troops. We'll make but, a movie, you know, and you know that's our way of welcoming them home. Well, as far as Not honoring, honoring that, the, may, uh, as far as honoring, a lot the, of the veterans, yeah, and, and a yeah. lot of the veterans that I know. I mean, I'm you know meeting these young guys, and some like, some don't like. It's just like we were. Some you know hate deer hunter and some like deer hunter And, and, and what's really funny is when they're over there the movies that they watch are deer hunter apocalypse now yeah. <laughs> this is what they watch yeah. well america's they, attitude yeah,
1: they... has has changed so it's 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 180 degrees it's during the vietnam era it was there was much so much criticism about what was going on over there and in the past 10 years it's been almost reversed it's the cry of support the troops has been well, has yeah, been constant. Well, here's the thing. In the long way home, and there's a lot about this in the long way home, and, and this is something that people
0: forget, I think, unless they were involved in it, there was a movement in the 80s that Tracers was part of. You know, There was a huge Vietnam veterans movement across the country. We all connected up. It's what resulted in the creation of the wall. It's what resulted in my going on tour. Every, every tour stop we had was not just a theatrical production, it was a healing. The veterans came down out of the mountains to see us. So this was a movement, and and part of our movement was this welcome home and recognition and yada yada, but I do have to say that I think, and and my younger veteran friends that I know now will have agreed with me on this, it's become a knee-jerk reaction to welcome home and honor the troops that doesn't have meaning. They, they don't feel it. They can feel it themselves. As people say it to them in the airport. They go, thank you. And then when I talk to them about reality, they go, I didn't need that. You know, I still got ghosts in my brain. You know? uh, so there is that knee-jerk reaction. And I think also... There's a huge difference in that there didn't seem to be any cause in Vietnam. No one feared that the North Vietnamese were going to take over that whole part of the world, although they tried to after we left. That's a fact. Uh, uh, but here we had a cause. Here we'd been attacked. Right. So it was just completely different. I, I Personally, I'll say that I never thought Bin Laden was in Iraq, and I never thought there were weapons of mass destruction in Iraq, and I do think that we had... A huge distraction, but you know. But at the same time, enough people were convinced that it was patriotic. You know, uh, I mean, what we were involved in in Vietnam was somebody else's civil war. Uh, it, there is, it, there is a uh, uh, this idea that communism wanted to spread in the domino right. theory and all of that. There's a lot of mixed feelings, I have to tell you, George, because. You know, part of the, the real difference between our war and these current wars is that our war was extremely controversial and had literally divided the country. These wars did not do that. You know, people do feel that they should support the troops. I think everybody does. But you know what? Inside the GI, the guy who comes home, and I've met some of the women, not many women. I had, you know, because of the nature of my work, I've known mostly the men. What they call the warrior's heart. They're all carrying it, you know, they, they, their stories are different, their people are different, their enemies are different, their music is different, but they feel the same way we did. They have what they call the warrior's heart.
1: Is there a problem equating the experience of Vietnam with the, the experience of, of the modern wars? I mean, my own experience in
0: directing these veteran actors in this last production of Tracer is, you know, is my best example. In, in, in general, there were all certain things that they just knew, they knew, uh, you know, there's the monologues that are basically PTSD monologues. They knew those feelings. It was a different war, but they knew those feelings. Uh, what was different maybe was uh, how they hold their weapons. You know, like ours, ours were bigger, more cumbersome, you know. So like in doing mime stuff, I had to sort of retrain them in weaponry. They also didn't know uh, uh, some of the slang. But at the same time, there were just so many things that they just felt, oh, I feel that, that, you know, I have that in common with you guys. And there was a lot of something I never thought of when I was creating Tracers, and especially, you know, our generation, you and I, George, and especially Vietnam vets, I think we all think we're going to be young for the rest of our lives. And all of a sudden, we're the older guys. <laughs> so, you yeah, as, as, yes, yes, yeah, as the World War II vets are, are dying off, I realize, you know, I have involved, evolved into a position of mentorship with these young guys, and I just do my best. Yeah. You
1: know? Yeah. Well, you've you've got the long way home. Reflections on the Tracer's journey, and with, with, without getting into the, the the fourth wall breaking, reflecting upon itself kind of thing, why did why did you feel the need to to create this? It grew out of an opportunity, actually. Um, I work with a company out here, a
0: company that was founded about five or six years ago, Rogue Machine Theater Company. So I'm, I'm a founding member of that company, and it's been an extremely phenomenal sort of evolution for the company. I haven't actually done a show, show there, although mine are co-productions, how... Well respected, it's become really in a very short period of time. As yes. a company. So I've been doing this solo work and, and spoken word, really just uh, kind of changing my image. I, I I I direct when directing projects come to me, but I wanted to perform more, so I started writing my own material. So for five or six years, I've been doing that in different venues and events. So I had this opportunity in November of I think it was 2012, maybe it was 11, but anyway, to 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 use the space, the Rogue Machine Company space. That's all it was was I had the space. And I wanted to do something you know, with my solo work. And I said, well, okay, it's November. I'll do something about veterans. I'll start trying to tell the story of tracers. And and the only other thing that I had in mind as far as a motivation was a little bit of setting the record straight because there are a lot of different stories out there about tracers and how it was created. And, and so I, I, there was a little bit of setting the record straight, but really it was an opportunity to use the space. I had enough material already written, and then I just started adding on. So I did two nights of a, of a um, um, uh, staged reading, semi-staged, semi-reading, and I worked with a percussionist, a guy named Al Keith, who, uh, who sings. He's a musician. So I have live, um, a live soundtrack on stage with me. You know, you hear this guy playing Congress and doing Gimme Shelter live. So uh, he, he and I did that for two days. At the time, I had formed a liaison with the new organization, the U.S. Veterans Artist Alliance. So Keith Jeffries, who runs that group, he and I were talking about what what could I do with them. So we decided to do The Long Way Home. We did like just six performances and it was pretty successful, you know, a critical level. Mm -hmm. And so so then we decided to follow it up the following year, which is this past year with this big production, which was Tracers and
1: The Long Way Home in Rep. You
0: want to give us a short bit of long way home sure uh, uh there's a, a the long way home goes through my life from I guess about uh sixty five when I joined the service to uh up to the early eighties. This is my little homage to what it was like to come home. Uh, my percussionist is playing a very soft cool version of when Johnny comes marching home again, hurrah, hurrah. And I start. After the NAM, we all took the long way home. After the NAM, we all went inside ourselves. We came back to the world older. We came back to the world separate. We were the quiet ones on your campuses. We were the moody ones in your bars. No, when Johnny comes marching home again, nope. Not for us, no parades, no grand patriotic ceremonies, no thanks after the Nam, we would learn that there were be no after the Nam we would become
1: shadow warriors, always, always in two places at one time. Thank you, thank sure. you, yeah, I've got one more question for you, and then I'll let you get back to the uh beautiful L.A. sunshine. I'm looking at Long Way Home, Reflections on the Tracers Journey, and I'm looking at the original Tracers. I want to mention your 2007 show, Walking Through the Fire, which is autobiographical. All three of them deal heavily with someone coming so close to death. All right, looking it right deep in the eye and being close enough to feel its breath. Out of all these shows that you keep doing talking about coming this close to it what does that put in your heart what does that teach you that's a really really interesting
0: question i really like that because uh, you know when you're a writer yourself george i know that and when you write sometimes you wonder yourself why the same themes keep coming up and coming up and coming up i suppose in some ways for me it's a fact. In my life, I have dealt with death a lot. So it is the dramatic thing that comes to mind, you know, when I write often. Um, and uh, it is painful to do. It's strange. You know, it's strange because as a performer, I mean, it's strange because it's a release like any other performer. But it's a world away from doing somebody else's play. You know, it's, for me, uh, it's not like doing Chekhov. It's not like doing Shakespeare. I'm doing this piece that I wrote that, yes, comes very close to the edge or to death or however you want to look at it. But I'm, I'm also reliving it. You know, it was it was interesting for me because any other theater artists, young actors out there listening to this, I got it that you. Doing a solo show is probably one of the most terrifying experiences in the world. <laughs> and when you're when you're writing it, when you're writing it, you're in your living room, you're having your coffee, you're on the computer, and you're going, "Oh, this is good." You know, you get up, you you perform a little bit, yeah, that's going to work. And and then you think, "Oh, I hope I can get a production." I hope I can. Then you do get a production. You know, okay? All right. And then you're rehearsing it, and the first thing that happens is, "Why did I write all this? I can't remember it all." <laughs> and then, yeah, yeah, yeah. So then you've got to drill the, the memory thing because you're, you're beginning to realize that it's going to be only you out on stage. And then there's the moment of truth where you're standing behind that curtain and you're going, what have I got myself into? You know? And then you hit the stage. And I mean, I think this relates to your question that, especially if you're doing this autobiographical stuff and as heavy as it is, it's transforming. I think, for me as a performer, and it's not difficult at all once I get started. The scary part is standing behind that curtain. But once I get started, it's you know, maybe it's a little bit like I finally got to be by the solo performance stuff. I finally got to be the rock musician that I always wanted to be <laughs> because once I get out there, it does take over, you know, and, and I, I feel the performance. And so if it's about death or if it's about getting high or if it's about seeing a woman that I'm struck by for the first time, uh, I can relive it, you know? So that's also the good part for aspiring solo performers. If you're doing autobiographical
1: work, you don't have to dig up the feelings. (laughs) Yes, that's true. That's true. Well... John, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Would you, first of all, give us your website? Okay. You know, I have a web page slash website. It's not
0: the greatest in the world, but it is JohnDefusco.com, com. There's also a lot of good information on that uh, www.usbaa.org.
1: Okay.
0: I'm also I'm very active on Facebook. You know that. So yes, I do. If think, people think it's a good idea to friend me, they can friend me. Uh, I'm going to do a spoken word performance on Friday the 21st up here in my local neighborhood. I have family visiting, and uh, I'm going to take part in an open mic and do some stuff for them that they've never heard before. In April, early April, I'm going to uh, Ventura. This is really kind of crazy and interesting, but I was invited to speak at the Ventura Jewish Film Festival because they are screening a, a documentary about Joseph Papp. And someone found out that I had worked with Joe Papp, and there's a whole sequence in The Long Way Home, two or three scenes that I have with Joe Papp, in which I'm going to play Joe Papp myself at this event with me, you know, trying to get the deal in New York is what it's about. And it's kind of humorous because Joe Papp is this very sophisticated
1: uh, guy. He's a legend. And I'm like this. The man's an yeah. icon. And He's I'm, a legend, yeah.
0: Yeah. And I'm this over the top, over the edge yeah, at the time, in my 30s, crazed Vietnam vet actor. I mean, after, after the first meeting with Joe Pack, I asked my friend Tom Bird, who was uh, my producer in New York, also a Vietnam vet, we made this happen together. I said to him, I said, wow, man, I said, uh, did I, you think I talked too much in the meeting? He said, I got to tell you, man, you were leaning forward with the veins popping out of your neck through the entire meeting, and I think that's why <laughs> you need to deal with it. <laughs>
1: so. It's been great having you on the show, John. Um, Folks, if you can ever get a chance to see Tracers, rush right out and do it. It's, it will change your life. It will blow your mind. Uh, John DeFisco, thank you so very much for being on On Stage, Off Stage. And uh, if you would be so kind, would you walk us out with another section of Long Way Home?
0: So when I look back on it all, I am grateful. I am grateful that I somehow had the blind faith to take a risk and follow a dream. I am grateful to the original group for their blind faith in me i am grateful to the ghosts all those who died in the war and all those who died since and the beat goes on we are riders on the storm we are flowers of the dragon we are warriors in peace we will take you on a journey through a heart that never cease we are walking with the dead we are dancing with their souls blood brothers to the end we are dreamers we are teachers We are healers. we are priests, and the beat goes on. We are riders on the storm, we are flowers of the dragon, we are warriors in peace. We are flowers of the dragon, we are warriors in peace. We are flowers of the dragon, we are warriors in peace.